The scripture this morning will be coming from Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. You'll find this in page 853 of the Pew Bible. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Good morning. It is good to see each of you. If you're a guest, again, we welcome you. It encourages us that you're here, and we want to be an encouragement to you. Every day is a gift from God, but this Sunday, so far as the calendar falls, just seems especially like a gift from God, because there's not a lot of years that we get to come together 53 Sundays out of the year, and that's what we're enjoying today, almost like an extra time, an extra Sunday to worship God this year, and what a blessing it is. I hope you'll set your sights on next year, and I hope you'll be committed to saying, I want to worship God every Sunday next year. I want to be involved in a Bible class every Sunday and every Wednesday night. There are things that we can do that are just right, but in and of them being right, they are such a rich blessing, and the worship of God and the study of His Scriptures and the encouragement that we have with each other. You just can't put a price tag on that. It truly is one of the richest blessings that we have on this earth. In addition to the Sundays and the Wednesdays, there's a lot of other opportunities to be involved. We hope that you'll pick up a calendar this Sunday. We'll say more about this next Sunday, but they're scattered throughout the foyer right now. And this is our 2013 calendar. Hope you'll use that to make your plans and plan on getting involved in the things that are here. And then also you can work other things around your schedule uh, so that you'll be available at these times also. You'll see a lot of good things that will be happening. And one of the things that will be happening there is that we'll be concentrating on the, the theme of soul focus. We want to think a whole lot about our souls this next year. And we want to make sure that we have the right things at the highest place and the highest priority in our life. We also want to remind you that just in a couple of weeks, our elders, deacons, and ministers will be on a retreat. And we hope that we'll have 100% participation in that, but we hope that 100% of you will be praying for us. Uh, our hope and our prayer is that that will be a rich weekend, that it will encourage us and inspire us as leaders to be what God would want us to be in the life of this church. A congregation will never surpass its leadership. And so we must be continually strengthening not only all of us, but especially the leadership so that we can be what God has called us to be. And I hope you'll be prayerful about that. Those, those weekends uh, that we take once a year can be very rich and uh, in, in lessons that we'll study from God's word. It also can be rich in the encouragement and the challenge that we can offer each other. And it's not something that we take lightly or even take for granted. And so... Uh, be, be prayerful about that, and let's, let's hope and pray that this next year starts off in a way uh, that all of us can give our very best to God. Uh, we, we've already shared a little bit of good news, but I've also heard that Hollis and Myrna McKinley are celebrating a 51st anniversary uh, today, and we uh, congratulate you. What a wonderful example uh, they are to us, and what wonderful brothers and sisters in Christ and wonderful servants that they are uh, to the entire congregation, the church family here, and we're thankful for you. 
to put it in the context of Jesus' day. When Jesus said, love your enemies, or when he said, take up your cross and follow me, you remember, don't you, that he wasn't saying that in the context of his life that was an American living in the suburbs of a nice city. Have you really stopped and considered the context of Jesus' day and time? When Jesus was four years old, there was a man named Judas who became a hero, somewhat of a bandit, of a rebel. He came from a little city on this next slide. You'll see there just about four miles away from Nazareth was Sepphoris. And Sepphoris was the central region for the Roman Empire in the Galilean area. And he broke his way in with the leaders of the troops that he had with him into this walled city. And he took over Herod's arsenal and he began to loot the royal palace and he wreaked his havoc upon that town. He was considered somewhat a hero among the Jews. But yet, even though the Roman forces in that one city couldn't handle him, just north was Syria. And the Roman Empire sent word for Syria governor to send down troops. 18,000 soldiers marched south. And they began to put all of the rebels in their place. As a matter of fact, when they went in and destroyed them, they took, if you will, prisoners as far as the capital city of Jerusalem. But there, just outside the wall, they began to crucify them. Not just two or three guys. Can you imagine looking out of the city walls and looking down the road and supposedly on each side of the road were 2,000 men crucified. It was a strong message. That was a common message for the Romans to, to impress upon their citizens. And they didn't just crucify them and at the end of the day give them an honorable burial. They left them there for a reminder for the birds and the dogs to devour. But for everyone to see, this is Rome in control. This is what happens to people that do not bow to the emperor's wishes. And so in the Lord's language, that would also be their enemy. Love your enemy carried with it some strong challenges. It wasn't just that one friend that stabbed you in the back. It wasn't that classmate that's difficult or that coworker that makes your life miserable or that family member that just seems to always be against you. Listen, when Jesus said, take up his cross, he said that before he ever died on the cross, bringing glory to the cross itself. They knew the cross as a horrible place of execution. They knew that it was where those were put to death. And Jesus said, take up the cross. They could picture crosses after crosses after crosses. 
You see, that kind of changes theology a little bit, which all of us know that bumpers are not the best place to get your theology. But on this next slide, you probably have seen this bumper many, many times. You can't go down the road beyond too many miles before you'll see somebody stating Christians aren't perfect. They're just forgiven. And I'm sure the ones that have that mean well. But is it really that simple? Can you really place the word just in front of forgiven? What did it cost for us to be forgiven? And is it really that simple? Hey, the only difference in me and the world is that I'm a Christian and the Lord has granted me forgiveness and that's it, just forgiven. No, the forgiven forgive. And it is that realm of living as a forgiving person that changes everything of our life. Because we have been forgiven, we forgive others. And friends, that's not a just. That's not something small. As a matter of fact, that's something that has been a challenge for mankind ever since Jesus Christ came to this earth. Do you realize two centuries before Jesus came to this earth, there was a man named Judah Maccabeus. Judah was the son of a Jewish priest. There had been another Jewish priest that was willing to offer, because now this is under the Greek empire, willing to offer pagan sacrifices to the Greek gods. And so this priest felt that it was his place to punish the other priest by executing him. The Greek empire hears of this, and so they decide they're going to execute him. And so literally, as he is dying, history says he looks over at his sons that were lined up there and he said, avenge the Gentiles. Make them pay fully for their sins. His third son, Judah Maccabeus, took that to heart. And he became a type of guerrilla leader. And he had some success at avenging the enemies of his father. But you know what the strange thing about that story is? Or is it strange? A lot of people in his day and time, a lot of the Jews, thought that he was the Messiah. They thought the one that they had been waiting for has come. This is the Messiah. Look, he's pulled out his sword and he's putting them in their place. He's come. And you say, how, how could they think that? Friends, that's not far-fetched as we even look through the New Testament. For just a moment, I'd like for you to flip with me to, to three different passages very quickly for us to see the struggle, us as humans, to realize that Jesus' purpose of coming to this life is all about forgiveness. Think with me for just a moment. When Jesus came to this earth, when you picture the cross, what do you hear Jesus saying there? Do you, do you see the cross and think that, that Jesus is coming to put everybody in their place? Or do you think he's coming to forgive? They struggled with that. Look at Luke the ninth chapter. In Luke the ninth chapter, Luke the ninth chapter, we read about two sons that we grow to admire throughout the New Testament, James and John. These brothers 
We realize in Luke the ninth chapter didn't always have a good understanding of what they were signing up for in Christianity. In verse 52, we see they're passing through a village of Samaritan of Samaritans. And we see that they tried to prepare them for Jesus and the people would have no preparation for Jesus. So in 54, and when his disciples, James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from the heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? But he, talking about Jesus, turned and rebuked them and said, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. What were they thinking? They were thinking that Jesus was going to be like Judah Maccabeus, that he's going to put everybody in their place, that the Messiah has come. It's going to be like a Davidic kingdom where, where when the Messiah comes, he's going to rise up or raise up the children of Israel. And it's going to be a rule and a reign far superior than any other physical kingdom on the earth. And so they wanted to call down and physically destroy avenge them, put them in their place, the ones that wouldn't have part in this kingdom. That kind of language is what we see in Matthew, the 16th chapter. You remember Matthew, the 16th chapter where Jesus spoke to Peter and to the rest of the apostles there and he explained to them that it's his time to go to Jerusalem and there that he will suffer, there that he will be killed and on the third day that he would rise again. And look at verse 22. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and he said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're an offense to me for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. What do you think Peter had in mind there? When he said, listen, I'm not, I'm not going to allow this to happen. He was thinking violence. He was thinking a sword. I'm going to stand between any of your enemies and you. And I'm not going to let anybody get to you. And Jesus is like, Peter, you don't understand my purpose on this earth. And you don't understand the purpose that I call disciples after me. Do you think that's a stretch of understanding? Now it's no surprise when we turn over later in John the 18th chapter, the Garden of Gethsemane, they've come to arrest Jesus. And what does Peter do? John 18 and 10, Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. And so Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? Then the detachment of troops and the captains of the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Can you imagine what Jesus was trying to say to Peter at that point? It's almost as if he's still saying, you remember, we had this conversation back. Get behind me. This is not what my purpose, my kingdom is upon this earth. My life is about forgiveness. I'm calling others that will be forgiven to live a life of forgiveness. Not a life that demands my way. It's my right. You can't treat me like that. You can't talk about my family like that. I'll defend myself and I'll put you in a place and the Lord says, whoa. That's what we have to come to an understanding about. What is the theology of Jesus? What is the study of God in flesh? Did he come to reign with a sword? Isn't it interesting that Maccabeus means hammer? And individuals thought that Judah 
the hammer was the Messiah? And instead, Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah, the one that kept saying, put your swords away. There is another kind of living that we're going to be involved in. As a matter of fact, in John, the 10th chapter, Jesus would describe it like this. I have come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. Later in that very same chapter, he says, no man takes my life. I've come to give my life. And what did he do? He did that. And he went to the cross to bring forgiveness to you and I. But you remember, while he was on that cross, he even demonstrated it further. It wasn't enough for him just to die. But as he was dying, we only have recorded seven sayings from the cross. And you remember, one of those sayings from the cross is as he looks down to the very ones that crucified him. And he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Not only was he dying for them, but his heart and his attitude was expressed through his lips, the lips of a dying man. Forgive them. And if you had never read the Bible ever in your life and you go to Luke 23 and you read that passage we just read and you say, this intrigues me. I want to read more about this man. And you just keep reading. About 10 pages over, you're going to read about Stephen. And Stephen was a man that if the church would have been mature, he would have been a deacon. He was a special servant that was chosen like a deacon. And yet he began to teach and to preach. And he preached with such power that the Jews wanted to kill him. Literally, they grinded and gnashed with their teeth and they drug him up and they threw him out of the city and they began to pick up rocks. And he knelt down and he looks up and he sees the Lord Jesus standing on the right-hand side of God. And then he says, Lord do not charge this sin to them. And if you had never read the Bible before in your life, you could not help but see he died in the same heart that Jesus died. And it's easy for us to see that and just say, well, that's just the way you die. Let's pause there for just a moment. He wasn't dead yet. So let's phrase it this way. Stephen lived until his death in the same heart, in the same way that Jesus lived until his death. You see, now that places the emphasis on, on me. It's easy for us to talk about, I want to be an imitator of Christ. What would Jesus do? I want to follow in Jesus' footsteps. What would Jesus do? Jesus would live every day as a forgiving person. People that follow Jesus are forgiven and the forgiven forgive and that changes everything. People that live every day with a humble heart that says, I'm not looking at what I can hold against people. I'm not looking at what I can prove physically. The most important thing to me is the spiritual kingdom. And the most important part about a person is not what they have just said or done to me. The most important part about them is their soul. What can I do to help others find forgiveness? Let's go back to our text in Matthew, the sixth chapter. I'd like for you to see four things about this text. I want to remind you that if you have your Bible open, if you back up just a few pages, you see what oftentimes is called the Lord's Prayer. And in the midst of that prayer in verse 12, he talked about forgive us of our debts as we forgive our debtors. 
And he continues the prayer. But just after the amen, the very first thing that he mentions, it's almost as if he said, oh, I know that there was a phrase in there that probably got your attention. And you're probably wondering if I really meant what I said there or if I did, what would that look like lived out? And so right after he says amen, this is exactly what he says. Look at it again, Matthew 6, 14 and 15. For if you forgive men their trespasses, see the if statement, if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. The first thing that I want you to see from this text is that he is describing a common characteristic of the disciples of Jesus. In other words, if we were going to say, what is it that disciples of Jesus do? What, what do they look like? What are some characteristics? One of the immediate things we'd have to say is they are people that forgive others. That's just who they are. In other words, someone says, well, I tell you this, I won't forgive. Well, that's not a characteristic of the disciples. You, you didn't get that from God's family. That came from another source. As a matter of fact, this text we're reading in is in the Sermon on the Mount. Let's back up and let's scan some things just out of the fifth chapter and let's see how this, this environment is created in the Sermon on the Mount. It's not just here in this one text. Let's back up to the fifth chapter in verse seven. We have the Beatitudes beginning at verse three and notice Matthew five and seven as we think about the characteristics of a Christian. Look at verse seven. Blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy. That's the same thing that we just read. It just used different words, didn't it? If, if we're going to be forgiven of God, we have to be willing to forgive others. Blessed are the merciful. Are we merciful towards others? Well, that's who can obtain mercy. If you've never thought about it this way, this might be one of the small light bulb moments. You know the passage that probably all of us here love dearly? Psalm 23. And you remember when he says... My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Why do you think goodness and mercy follows the follower of God all the days of their life? It's because once we receive the goodness and the mercy from God, the forgiven, go out to everybody in every situation and offer goodness and mercy. And if you're a third party and you're, and you're watching them, and maybe, maybe you picture a, a grandmother or, or a grandfather, maybe you picture a parent, maybe you picture a, a friend, there's somebody that you probably picture in, in, in your life right now and you say, they were always so good to people, to everybody. Even people that would mistreat them. They were so good to them. They were so merciful. And you could honestly say about them, they just seemed to have an abundant life. They seemed to have a cup that overflowed. It just seemed wherever they went, that mercy, that goodness and mercy just followed them all the days of their life. Of course it did. Because the source of it is God and his fountain never stops flowing. But the result is for a child of God, someone that can say, the Lord is my shepherd. Their life is going to be a continual exercise in goodness and in mercy, no matter what the other person has done. 
But he doesn't stop there. Let's skip down to Matthew, the, the fifth chapter, 23 and 24. Matthew, the fifth chapter, 23 and 24. He kind of starts setting this up in 21 and 22. But then when we get to 23, Matthew 5, he says, Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar... Remember, this is written under the old covenant. So they would have been bringing still physical sacrifices and, and, and offering them as a part of their worship. You bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Now, if someone twists this out of the meaning of which it was written, someone would say, well, I'll tell you why I don't go to worship anymore. It's because God said that, that if you have a problem with your brother, he doesn't want you in worship. That's a misunderstanding here. The Lord is saying, I want you in worship, but I want you to know that there are some things that have to be right. If you're going to be right with me coming in to pour out adoration to God in worship, he says, you have to be right with your brothers and sisters. You can't be wrong with your brothers and sisters and be right with God. And so God is not saying, don't come worship me. He's saying, first, go and mend the wrongs that you have with your brother or sister. Then second, come back and worship me. If you get here to worship and you forget or have forgotten and now are reminded that there's a problem between you and a brother or sister, he says, Go ahead and leave. Mend those wrongs. Reconcile is the word that comes to mind there. As he says, see again at the end of verse 24, there's two sentences. Look at the second sentence. First, be reconciled to your brother. The word reconcile is the idea of to change. In other words, here's a fractured relationship. Let's change it and let's bring it back together again. Now, when we think about what the Lord is trying to teach us, you see how this, this atmosphere, this culture of forgiven people continue to forgive others. That's what the Lord is asking of us. If I sit in one part of the church building intentionally because I don't want to be in another part of the church building because of someone else sitting over there, God is saying, you've got to get some things right between yourselves before you can be right with me. It's a little deeper than bumper theology. There really is a massive shift in who we become if we truly are forgiven people. Forgiven people truly do forgive others. Let's see what else he says. And each one of these, as we skip down to verse 38, each one is kind of like threads, if you will. It's not that in and of themselves they are forgiveness, but it's like they're threads that woven together help create the fabric of forgiveness. Look, if you will, in 38... You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for, an eye, for a tooth, and then 39. But I tell you, 
not to resist an evil person. Whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other. Anyone wants you to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. You see that kind of language is the kind of language that we would never do by our human nature. We, we, would, we would look at that and say, no one would do that. And you know, without Jesus Christ, consistently, no one would do that. But as children of God, forgiven people live a different life. Our life is not about pride and arrogance. And let me prove to you how big I am, how strong I am. But our life is about humility and exalting Christ and the kingdom first. And he is the great forgiver and he has forgiven us and he has called us to draw people unto him, not by saying, how strong of army can we build? How many troops can we get? How many weapons can we get? Have you ever thought about it? The Lord literally draws and builds his army based upon, let's show them forgiveness. Do what? Lord, we're going to build a kingdom showing people forgiveness? That's right. I'm going to invite people into my kingdom through forgiveness. Well, how are we going to help spread your kingdom? You go and not only teach about forgiveness, but in everything you live, Live forgiveness. And when we really stop and think about it with fresh eyes, as if we've never thought about it before, it's almost mind-boggling. This next line, you remember when we talked about the context of Jesus' day? Think about their enemies and think about your enemies as we read verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. What a challenge. To say that instead of defending myself, what I want to do is pray for you. I want to speak good of you. And I want to do good unto you. Forgiveness. Forgiven people forgive. It's just a part of the characteristics of the disciples of Jesus. But I'd like for you to notice the second thing. It's also the example of Jesus. As we go back to the text there, we see forgiving others is an example of Jesus. Let's look on this next slide and notice in Colossians, the third chapter, it is an example. Remember a while ago, we talked about Jesus on the cross. Not only was he dying so that we have forgiveness of sins, but he looks down and, and he exemplifies this. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And so then the question is, if Stephen can understand this and he can get this right in his life, what does it look like for you and I to get it right in our life. And in Colossians, the third chapter in verse one, he says, set your, your eyes or your affections on things above, not on things on this earth. What if we thought like Christ thought and the spiritual things were the most important? We would become a new creation. Look at Colossians three and 10. And having put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Now pause there for a moment. So if we become new, we're not our old self. We're not the old flesh that rules our life. But now we are forgiven. We are a new creation. We are following after the image of Jesus Christ. What's going to change? 
He has already spoken in this text of several things to do away with, and then he talks about several things to take into our life. Notice here verse 13, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you must also do. Okay, so we're going to follow Jesus' example. What must we do? We must be willing to forgive others. But, but he said that you have a complaint against them. You know what's interesting to me is how we sometimes struggle with this one because when we're not struggling with it, it seems to make so much sense. And when we're struggling with it, it seems to become very difficult. And by that, what I mean is when we study about forgiveness, I would say most of us, if not all of us, would say it's one of the most beautiful topics to study until it comes time for us to forgive someone. Then all of a sudden it's not so beautiful. And the strange thing is it's not so clear anymore. How many times have you heard someone say when, when someone says, well, you know, you need to forgive them. And their comeback is, but they've hurt me. But they, they sabotaged my career. Do you know what they said about my family? And they start listing all of these hurts. And you just want to be, you want to be like, what do you think forgiveness is? Can you forgive someone that's not done anything against you? No. Well, who do you forgive? You forgive people that have hurt you. And so the challenge is to be able to say, when I have pain that a brother or sister has created, I want my response. It won't be the fleshly nature. I want my response to be, this is what the Lord has called me to do. I want to forgive. And in that, we can imitate Christ. As we go back to our text, Matthew the 6th chapter 14 and 15, I want to remind you of a third thing is, and that is the relief from guilt. Are you willing? It's true, so it's not whether or not it's true. It's whether or not you're willing to accept it. Are you willing to accept this morning that a lack of forgiveness is sinful? And along with sin comes guilt. And along with guilt comes a lot of pain and disturbances in our inner person. What do you think Jesus had in mind when he said, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. A part of the rest that the Lord offers is not only for us to be forgiven, but as children of His, we learn how to forgive others and we ease our soul and our conscience and our mind of the past guilt that we had of holding grudges against others. Someone says, it's just my nature to hold grudges. Of course it's your nature to hold grudges. You're a human being. And so when we are called to the Christian life, we have to crucify that nature that wants to hold grudges. And we have to say, I'm not going to act on my fleshly nature. I'm going to act upon the will of Jesus Christ. I want to do away with that sin. That's why Psalm 51 is so powerful. David not only realized that his sin was sin and needed to be forgiven, but he knew that the guilt of it was taking away his peace and his happiness. Look at Psalm 51 and 1. Notice the word mercy here. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, which by the way, the root of that in Hebrew is mercy also. According to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Three times in the first verse, he talks about mercy, 
mercy, mercy. And then immediately he talks about those sins being blotted out. Why? Skip down, if you will, down to verse eight and notice one reason why. Make me hear joy and gladness. Or what about verse 12? Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Listen, when I get the guilt of the sin of failing to forgive out of my life, I can then come to know a peace that passes understanding and I can know a joy that can only be experienced by being a forgiven person that forgives. But finally this morning, I'd like for you to look back at the text one more time, and this is the one that's the most obvious. When we look back again at Matthew 6, 14 and 15, we see that for forgiving others, it is required to be forgiven of God. I can't be forgiven of God if I'm not willing to forgive others. In Matthew, the 18th chapter, we read a powerful passage. I can only, for time's sake, just allude to a few of the verses. Many of us know Matthew, the 18th chapter, and I think we think of it in verse 15 and following as being more of like a broad principle of the whole church involved in this. But I'd like for you to remember in verse 15, it said, moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he hears you, you have gained your brother. And then he tells if he doesn't hear you, you take another. And then if, if eventually he doesn't hear that, you, you take it before the church. Can you imagine that? We all to be able to imagine that because that's God's will. That's how important unity is. And it's finally in this setting where he says, I want you to come together. When there is, is differences, when you have, have problems separating you and a brother or sister, he says, I want you to come together and I want you to sit down and I want you to find reconciliation in this. And notice verse 20. It's probably the most quoted verse in the Bible out of the context in which it's written. Notice verse 20. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of you. That's not talking about when you go camping, Jesus is there if three of you are sitting down worshiping. Perhaps he is there then. But the reason this is written, this is talking about when you have problem with a brother or sister. Now keep in mind, you may have left your gift at the altar. You may have said, I can't go to worship this morning. I've got to go out and I've got to make this right with my brother or sister. Where's the Lord? The Lord says, you better believe when there's brothers or sisters sitting down to reconcile differences, I'm right in the middle of that. God loves it when his family loves peace. Blessed are the peacemakers. It takes a lot of humility and a lot of courage and a lot of effort to say, I'm not going to live a life that is fractured with anyone. I can't make up their mind and their decision, but as for me and my part, I'm always going to go and seek reconciliation. I want their soul right with God, no matter what they've done. And I want my soul to be right with God, no matter what I've done or what they have done. And so I'm going to go. And I know that I never go in those situations alone. God is with us when we go in those situations. And so Peter comes up and says, well, what if we forgave seven times? And they just keep doing the same thing. And he says, you forgive seven times 70. 490 is not the magic number. He's saying you forgive over and over. And then he teaches a parable in the following verses as we go down 23 through 35. 
And then that parable, he teaches about a man who forgave, he was a master and he forgave his servant a debt that would have been equivalent to 60 million days of labor. Let that set in. He owed his master 60 million days of labor and he was forgiven it. And as he leaves being forgiven, he goes out and sees a man that owes him a hundred denarii, about three to four months of wages of salary. He's just been forgiven 60 million days of labor and he grabs this guy by the throat and demands that he pays him. And when he can't, he throws him into jail, into prison. And the fellow servants, they know that's not right. They rush back to the master and they tell what he's done. And the master's infuriated and he brings out his anger upon this man and he throws him into the torture, the place of torture. And in 35, he says, so my heavenly father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. How serious is it? To say, I accept the forgiveness from Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. The Lamb was slain. I accept His forgiveness. Jesus on the cross. I accept His forgiveness. But I'm not going to offer it to anyone else. And Jesus says, you can't have my forgiveness then. It's that serious. In the first of December, we quoted Brian Zand as he said, if Christianity is about anything, it is about forgiveness. You can't separate forgiveness from any topic in the scriptures. It's about what the Lord has brought to us and it's about the life that forgiven people live. A life of forgiveness. If the Lord wills time, we're only a few days away from the end of a year. I want to urge you not to let the sun go down today without seeking to make reconciliation with anyone in your life where there are differences. You can't make or predict what their response will be. But you can do your part. There's a lot riding on that. Your example as a Christian is riding on that. Your soul is riding on that. You know, in ministry... I guess every now and then I get to see sometimes that not everybody gets to see. And I've seen the times that dying people reach out to someone and ask forgiveness where they've held grudges for decades. And you also at that time hear them say, I wish I would have done that a long time ago. If 
tomorrow wasn't the end of the year, but it was the end of your life. What visit would you make today? What phone call would you make today? I want to encourage you to do it. Not so you can be something special in the sense of different from anyone else. But simply so you can be a child of God. Forgiven people forgive others. And ultimately, the blessing will be yours. This morning, if we can help you in any way, maybe you just need prayers of strength. Maybe you need prayers for forgiveness. Maybe you're ready to be baptized into Christ. All month, we've been studying about forgiveness. And when everything is said and done, that's about all that matters. Are we forgiven people living as forgiven people?